Hello and welcome to The Church Militant, a podcast aimed at calling the church to stand firm in the faith, to fight the good fight of faith. We live in strange and difficult days. I can say with almost absolute certainty that apart from a mighty move of God in revival, darker and more difficult days are certainly on the horizon. But I can also say the majority of believers that I speak with seem to be overshadowed and weighed down with some sort of cloud of darkness. They spend almost all of their time looking at the world, overwhelming themselves with a constant flood of media and news that's always hostile, always imposing, always speaking of the impending doom, a doom which, quite frankly, we thought ourselves too comfortable and modern to ever experience. This causes a longing in the hearts of most people to just go back to how things used to be, back when things were comfortable, when things were easy, back when all of our expectations about what it meant to live a Christian life were met. I want us to understand, however, this experience is not unique to our day. In fact, if we look in the Scriptures, we find an example of this in the letter of the Hebrews. Many ethnic Israelites had come to confess Jesus as Messiah. They had seen him as the stone laid in Zion, elect and precious. They'd confessed him as the king who would soon return and crush their enemies under their feet. And yet, what little we can deduce from the book about their situation, they had begun to be abused, imprisoned, treated with contempt by their countrymen and the authorities, all because they had thrown in their lot with this Jesus. As a consequence, they begin to think about the good old days when they had the respect of their family and their friends and their neighbors. The days when they could freely attend the synagogues with their community and discuss the things of God. The days when they could conduct business and trade, providing for their families. The days when they didn't fear for their lives. Furthermore, they had believed that Jesus would soon return, that their suffering would be short-lived, and yet, He had not yet returned. In their discouragement and their despair, they were beginning to conclude they were better off to just go back to Judaism, to just go back to when things were easy. The writer to the Hebrews diagnoses this malady and writes this letter to administer the only cure. And the cure is simply this. Stop looking around and look to Jesus. Your gaze is misplaced. The eyes of your heart have set themselves on the wrong thing. Turn your eyes back to Jesus. Salvation and hope are found in Him alone. And to administer this cure, the writer sets out in this letter to show forth the supremacy of Christ's person and work. And this is the only hope for you and I today. I want us to look at a passage in Hebrews that comes at the conclusion of one section of the book of Hebrews and is kind of the springboard into the main section of the book of Hebrews. That's a passage found in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, running down to chapter 5, verse 10. I want us to think about this passage because as the writer to the Hebrews opens chapter 3, he says, consider Jesus. Now, after you read a phrase like that, you would expect to find a list of attributes related to the person and work of Christ for us to consider But after only a brief mention of Christ, the writer began to talk about the people of Israel in the wilderness. 
His main point in chapters 3 and 4 is that in spite of being delivered from Egypt, in spite of having seen all the signs of God's might and power, after walking through the Red Sea, the people get to the wilderness and they're tested. And almost immediately they turn to idolatry, disobedience, and unbelief. They longed to go back to Egypt when things were easy, when they had adequate food, when there was no threat of war, no exposure. So they grumble. They complain. They question God's ability to provide. And they question God's ability to fulfill His promises. And ultimately, when they come to the borders of the Promised Land, they fail to enter the promised rest. I wonder if you can relate to that. To know the joy of deliverance. To know the overwhelming delight of newfound salvation. And yet, not too far down the road, now you find yourself with unmet expectations, grumbling in the wilderness as we journey toward our final rest. So the writer says in Hebrews chapter 4, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same disobedience. It literally means, make haste, don't be late. It's a reference to when the people of Israel reach the promised land and the spies go in and they bring back the report about the giants, about the walls, about the gates, about the people. And they decide, there's nothing we can do to take possession of this land. It's impossible. In fact, as we read this account in Numbers chapter 14, we read, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. The people wept that night. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us in this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? God, hearing their grumbling, swears in his wrath they will not enter his rest. They'll perish in the wilderness. But then what happens? Well, the next day they decide, you know what? We were wrong. We're going to go on anyways. We're going we're gonna to go take the promised land. And they're defeated before their enemy. They're a day late. And that's the point here. Make haste. Strive. Don't be late. Strive to enter. And then he gives a warning in verses 12 and 13. Namely, about the power of the word of God to cut and to divide. He's pointing to the reality of judgment to come. He's trying to tell us no one's faking their way into the kingdom. No one is coming late. No one is pretending their way into taking the promised land. You may pretend and fool others, but God knows the heart. You're naked and exposed before him. He is the one with whom you have to do. So strive to enter that rest. Do not get comfortable in the wilderness. Do not long to go back to Egypt. Now remember, the point of this passage is for believers to consider Jesus. How so? Well, as we hear these words of warning of the failure of the people of Israel who had seen so much of God's power and glory, it's easy to think, I'm in trouble. I'm weak. I'm needy. I'm filled with doubt, so easily distracted, so prone to grumbling, so quickly needing to turn back. And knowing this, God inspires the writer just at the right time to say to the weak and needy Hebrews of the first century, 
and to the weak and needy believers throughout the centuries, all the way down to us this morning. Here is hope. Just look to Jesus. In this section of Hebrews, the writer is saying, Come, weak, needy, poor sinners, turn your eyes to the gracious provision God has made for you in Christ as the supreme, sympathetic, and all-sufficient high priest. Hold fast. Draw near to the throne where grace reigns. Come and find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. So as you listen to this, if you find yourself weak and needy, longing for how things used to be, let down by the reality of the wilderness between deliverance and eternal rest, I want to direct your gaze to look unto Jesus, the same way this passage of Hebrews does, namely, to look at him as the great high priest. The first thing I want you to notice is the office of the high priest. I understand that we live in a time so far removed from the priesthood of the Old Testament that it can be difficult to consider the office and work of the high priest of old. The writer gives us some insight, though, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes, his honor for, takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. It shows us that the office of the high priest is, first of all, an office of representation. Every high priest is chosen from among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men. A high priest is a man because it takes a man to relate to men. Only a man who knows what it is to bear the weakness of human temptation. Only a man can understand what it is to be acquainted with suffering as a creature made in the image of God. Only a man can sympathize with other men and their need for mercy and grace. Therefore, only a man will do as a priest. The high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men. His office is an office of representation. He stands as a man for men. He's taken from among men in order that he may represent them. And this implies the need for a representative, the need for a priest, the inability on one's own to be able to draw near to God. This was a consequence of the fall, as we read in Genesis 3, that God drove out the man at the yeast of the garden, placing a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Or we could read, even during the times of Moses, when God is giving the law, God tells Moses, You shall set limits for the people around the mountain, saying, Take care, do not go up to the mountain or touch it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And then, when the priesthood is established and the temple is erected, we read, in, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So there is a separation between man and God. Limits have been set. Distance has been created, so a representative is needed to draw near. And in order to be a representative, he must be a man from among men. 
So we notice, secondly, not just an office of representation, but as an office of mediation. And it's already been implied. That is, that man, as a priest, represents other men before God. We read in Hebrews, every high priest is chosen from among men and appointed to act on behalf of other men in relation to God. So the priest is a go-between. Since a man cannot approach God on his own, the high priest approaches God on his behalf. This great separation, this great distance that has been created because of man's sin, this great impassable gulf of enmity and wrath between God and man, necessitates a mediator, someone to stand in between God and man and bring peace. This is why the breastplate and the shoulder pieces of the priesthood are such powerful pictures given. Remember God said he called it a breastplate of judgment. He told Moses in Exodus 28, Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy places to bring them before God in regular remembrance. So just as the presence and the work of the high priest is a picture of living mediation, it's a picture of the reality of judgment and the necessity of mediation. When the priest goes in, he goes on behalf of other men in relationship to God. Notice thirdly that it is an office of propitiation. Every high priest, Hebrews says, is chosen from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer sacrifices and sin, sacrifices for sin. Here's the nature of this work. The priest's main function is to go to God on behalf of others with an offering of blood to satisfy the wrath of God in relationship to sin. The separation that exists between God and man is not just a matter of hurt feelings or cross words. It's a separation of nature. God is holy. In Him is no darkness at all. Evil cannot stand before His sight. He hates all workers of iniquity. His eyes are too pure to look upon sin. And there's only one price that can be paid. The wages of sin is death. So this office of the high priest is primarily concerned with bringing in blood to satisfy the demands of holy justice. So God gives the Day of Atonement, the day on which the people would gather together. A sacrifice is brought forth. The high priest would lay his hands on the head of the sacrifice to symbolize the transfer of the sins of the people onto the sacrifice. And then he would pierce the skin of that sacrifice, spill its lifeblood. With that blood, he would enter the most holy place. And in the most holy place, he would pour the blood upon the mercy seat, the seat of atonement, where God would come down to meet with the priest and accept the sacrifice. It was there the high priest stood to make propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of the people. So he's a man going to God on behalf of other men with a sacrifice for their sin. But the passage there in Hebrews 5 tells us another aspect of this office. Namely, it's an office of sanctification. He says he offers sacrifices for sins, yes, but he also offers gifts to God for men. The high priest was working more than just one day a year on the Day of Atonement. He had what you might call regular duties or daily duties or what our passage called ritual duties. Those were the duties of intercession and sacrifice. 
when the people would bring an offering of thanksgiving or contribution or free will offering, it was the duty of the priest to see to it that the offering was in order, that it was acceptable to God, that it was presented in a manner that was pleasing, that it would be offered up in a manner consistent with the way God had revealed himself, that it would be offered up in a manner with which God was pleased. And it was the duty of the high priest to to make sure these things were in order. Another duty he had was to offer daily incense, to keep the incense burning before the Lord, representing daily prayer and intercession on behalf of the people he represented. And when we put these things together, we get this picture of the functions and the, and the work of the priesthood. A man chosen from among men to go to God for those men, to offer sacrifices for sins, and to offer gifts. We need to understand these things if we're going to understand what it means that Jesus is our high priest. But notice, we don't just have Jesus as a high priest. Scripture tells us he is our great high priest. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So Christ is our high priest. Is great. He is superior. There's something about him and his work as a high priest that stands above all the rest. That's the point. That's the point the author is trying to communicate. The first thing we want to think about is the supremacy of his person. Jesus, the Son of God, the only high priest who in one person has two natures. He's God and he's man. Although he is the Father of eternity, the everlasting God, When the fullness of time came, he came into the world to be born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he too might be taken from among men, so that he could act on behalf of other men as a perfect representative. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, he was made like us in order that he might be a proper representative. Yet, in becoming like us, he never ceased to be very God of very God. So as a high priest, he's not only able to represent us and relate to us, but as God, he is able in himself to lay hold of the inapproachable God for us. And that gulf, that span, that distance, that separation, it's been conquered. Being able to lay hold of both God and man, he alone is able to accomplish real reconciliation. That is the supremacy of his person. Then we see the supremacy of his nature. Hebrews 4 tells us, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It means, as a man, Jesus knows what it is to be tempted. Just as Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years, he was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. And where Israel and her priests failed and turned to idolatry, stumbling, disobeying, He conquered. 
He fasted. He prayed. He entrusted himself to the Father, and he comes out of the wilderness having conquered the evil one, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Therefore, as the sinless and spotless one, he has no need to offer a sacrifice for his own sin before he can begin to intercede for his people. There's no pause. There is nothing hidden in his closet. There's no concern as he goes to God on our behalf because in his nature he is sinless. He knows what it is to be tempted as a man, yet without sin. And then we see the supremacy of his sympathy. If you remember, Hebrews 5 tells us that this priest must be taken from among men in order that he can sympathize with the weak and the wayward. If you think about Christ and his omniscience and his sinlessness, and you understand those things as it relates to him being a sympathetic high priest, as God, he knows what is in the hearts of all men. He doesn't need anyone to testify about what is in men. But then as man, he knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what constant supply of the Spirit is needed to stand firm in the faith. He knows the energy needed to pray, to fight, to wrestle. He knows the weariness of groaning with tears and suffering. And this passage tells us that he stands as our high priest at the throne of grace to give mercy and grace to everyone in their time of need. I want us to also think about the supremacy of his sacrifice. This passage tells us that our great high priest has passed through the heavens, and this is a reference to his sacrificial work. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews would go on to say in chapter 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. We think about the reality of the yearly sacrifice over and over, as Hebrews says later in chapter 9, a constant reminder of sin. But Christ has no need to offer himself repeatedly. He has not gone into the holy place made with hands. He has gone into the true holy place in heaven and offered himself once and for all, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Therefore, the supremacy of his sacrifice is that he has secured an eternal redemption. And that calls our attention to think on the supremacy of his salvation. There is a supremacy here. This passage tells us that being made perfect He became the source of eternal salvation. And the contrast is painted perfectly for us when you think about the reality it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Christ has secured eternal redemption. His salvation is superior in that it actually saves. It's not typological. It's not merely a salvation of symbolism. It isn't merely something pointing us to something else. It actually accomplished eternal salvation. And then I want us to think about the supremacy of his intercession. Hebrews 7 tells us the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. By nature of his resurrection, by virtue of his indestructible life, he continues forever. There's no need for another priest to arise. There's no need for a replacement. There's no need for a transfer of the office. He continues forever. And therefore, with confidence, we can draw near because our priest is there. Our great high priest is living. He has the power of an indestructible life. He saves to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for his people. You think about the supremacy. You think about the excellency of Christ, the supremacy of his person, the supremacy of his nature, the supremacy of his ability to sympathize, the supremacy of his sacrifice, of his salvation, of his intercession. This is the one who is our great high priest. Who could relate better? Who could represent us better? Who could represent God better? Therefore, who could mediate better? Who could lay hold of God and man and accomplish reconciliation? Who could take our gifts, that our measly offerings that we bring to God in service and trying to live a life of faithful obedience and sanctify them and make them acceptable before God? Christ is our great high priest. And as we look unto Jesus as our great high priest, the writer to the Hebrew, he gives us two points of application. We find these in Hebrews 4 verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Yeah, it does seem easier to turn back. It would be easy to be overcome with weakness. It is easy to be discouraged in the wilderness of unmet expectations. It is easy to fall into despair thinking about the battles that lie ahead. It's easy to look back at how life was two or three or four years ago and just say, man, I wish things would just go back to the way they were. It's so easy, in fact, that you might grumble and say, oh, that we would have died in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, look at this great high priest, holy, harmless, separate from sinners. Consider him who endured so much suffering to himself. Consider him who left the glories of heaven to take upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh in order that he may be a faithful high priest to help you when you are suffering. Consider his supremacy. Consider the greatness of his sacrifice, the purchase of his salvation. Consider that you are already seated with him in the heavenly places, that the promised rest has been won, and you have already come to partake in it through your union with him. Consider nothing can separate you from the love of this great supreme high priest. Consider he lives forever in the presence of the Father with your name on his lips daily as he makes intercession for you. And now as you look at him, in his glory, in his supremacy, in his excellency, in his beauty. Can you draw back to Egypt? Can you lose courage looking at the conquests that lie ahead? 
Can you grow impatient and fearful and uncertain or disobedient knowing that He intercedes, watches, sympathizes for you, knowing that He reigns in grace to give mercy and help to you in your time of need? This is the only hope for you in the wilderness. Hold fast to all that you have confessed Him to be. Hold fast to all that He is. Stand firm in your faith. As you look forward at the fights that lay ahead, at the potential suffering that might come, hold fast to this faithful high priest. Hold fast to this gracious high priest. Hold fast to this high priest who is supreme. But the passage doesn't just tell us to hold fast. It also tells us to draw near. Since we have this great high priest, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near. You think about how opposite that is of the reality that the believers lived in under the old covenant. This privilege of drawing near is one no one knew under the Aaronic priesthood. But now, because of our great high priest, because of who he is, because of what he has done, we are commanded to draw near, to come near to the very throne of the almighty, thrice holy God called to draw near because we are accepted in the beloved. We are covered by his blood and eternal presence. We have been adopted into the family and received in arms of love. This invitation is given not to just the superhero Christians, not to just the heroes of the faith, but this invitation is given to the weakest of believers to the youngest of believers, to the most ignorant, to the wayward, to the downcast, to the fearful. Draw near. Look to your great high priest. He can sympathize. He knows the rage of temptation. He knows the, the desperate need for the Spirit. He knows the strength needed to wrestle and to pray. Draw near to him. Draw near and you will find that where he reigns, it is a throne of grace for his people. He knows how to deal gently with you. And you can draw near with confidence. You can draw near with bold face. You can draw near with open mouth. Commenting on this passage, A.W. Pink once said, The law was given that every mouth may be stopped. The high priest was given that every mouth may be open before the throne of grace. Think about that. The same God who reveals himself to sinful men. The same God who can look at us and say, Your sins have separated you. And I cannot look upon iniquity with approval. That same God became a man to be your high priest so that he could say, Draw near. So come as you are. And don't just hold fast. Don't just draw near. And this might be the hardest point of application, namely, Receive mercy and find grace. See, we have a tendency in situations like this, in dark and difficult days, we have a tendency to convince ourselves that we are receiving mercy, we are finding grace. But in actuality, all we're doing is laying our burdens down before the Lord, pointing to all of them, explaining the situation, and then as soon as we say amen, picking them all back up and bearing them on our own. Lord, I can't do this on my own. I'm overwhelmed. 
What should I do? How can I get through? Will you move? Will you act? Will you interpose yourself? Will you bring me salvation and help? And then after our amen, we just gather up all of our weaknesses, all of our burdens, all of our sins, all of our struggles, all of our questions, put them back on our back to bear them ourselves. And out we go into the wilderness to do it on our own. But remember, we come here to the throne of grace. We come to receive. Now, listen carefully. Yes, we come to praise, we come to confess, we come to worship, we come to give thanks. I'm not diminishing any of those aspects of prayer. Do not misunderstand me. What I am saying is that a well of infinite mercy flows forth from our great high priest. Strength to bear the heat of the wilderness. Sustenance to make it from Egypt's bondage to the promised rest. All of the strength and provision we need to fight these conquests and and enter his rest. All that we need to live, to run, to fight until we see his face. He holds it forth to us. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word, the means of grace. He's given us the brothers and sisters. And he's given us this access to the throne of grace holding forth this never-ending supply, inviting you to actually come and actually receive it. He makes the application almost too simple to even explain. Since we have such a great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In his book, a book that has been a great influence on my life, a book called Looking Unto Jesus, Isaac Ambrose defines what it means to look to Jesus in these words. Looking unto Jesus is an inward, experimental turning of the mind and heart to know, consider, desire, hope, believe, love, delight, and enjoy Jesus. And this looking stirs up our affections, quickens our spirit, and raises our resolution to pursue a holy walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing and fruitful in every way. Now, there's a lot there. But I give that definition to simply say this. The glory of Christ's priesthood has been set before us with some simple yet wonderful truths. These truths have been laid out for you to know. They've been put here in this format for you to consider But now it's up to you to take these truths and desire Christ as the great high priest. To hope in him as the great high priest. To believe in him. To love him. To delight in him and enjoy him. Yes, times are hard. Yeah, the world has gone completely crazy. Yes, it seems from surveying the landscape of the modern world around us, the hostility toward the Christian worldview, the hostility toward God's law and His people, that suffering, real suffering, a suffering that the modern world has not known for a long time. It seems like that suffering is coming. And it would be easy to shrink back. It would be easy to say, I wish things could go back to the way they were. But listen, The truth of the scripture is that we are not promised a comfortable, easy, convenient life free from suffering. In fact, we're promised suffering. We're promised trials. Our entire existence on this side of eternity is one of pilgrimage. 
as we go around proclaiming the Lordship of Christ to men and women who hate Him. One writer put it this way, The world is not a fit place, nor this life a fit time to enjoy such a rest as is reserved for heaven. So don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters. And if you are, look to Jesus. If you are discouraged, look to His supremacy and His excellency. Stop looking to the world. Stop looking to the situation. Stop looking to yourself. Look unto Jesus. Hold fast. Draw near. Receive mercy and receive grace. My name is Jordan Grogan. You've been listening to the Church Militant Podcast.